Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 301 of The Freelancer Show. Today on our panel, we have Eric Dietrich. Hello. And Jeremy Green. Hey, everyone. And Jonathan Stark. Hello. And I'm Reuven Lerner, and this week's topic is Chaos Clients. Uh, Jonathan, you wrote about this recently, so why don't you uh, introduce the idea to us? Sure, yeah. So I think probably anybody who's been freelancing for any length of time has had this kind of experience where uh, a student described to me their particular situation like this. Uh, they have a long-term client who they like, but would you know you could characterize as disorganized or reactive, and would constantly be having these fire drills. It was like a regular, on a regular basis, instead of thinking things through and then executing in a reasoned way or an intentional way, they'd kind of wait for things to blow up and then pull the fire alarm. And this, as you can imagine, resulted in my student have, you know, like, how do I deal with this? You know, is it's disruptive, it's interfering with home life. It's, uh, you know, like what, what can we do about this? And so I kind of went through a a list of things to think about that I think might be useful and then we could all talk about. Um, the first thing is like decide whether or not you want to keep the client because the behavior is, I've never seen a client like this actually change their behavior, especially at the behest of an outside consultant. They're probably, it's probably baked into the culture. It's probably top down and it's probably going to take a real long time for it to change. So if you can't, so if you just don't want to work that way, full stop, then probably you need to either fire them or, you know, perhaps you could make some overtures like you guys, you know, th this keeps on happening. It's, it's becoming a problem for us. It can't be fun for you. You know, we could make some suggestions if you want to change, but you know, I wouldn't count on them actually changing. You know, they'll, they'll say they will until the next time. So, Okay, so if that's just part of their DNA, do you want to keep them or not keep them? In my student's case, he did want to keep them because he, he really liked them. He liked what they were doing. He just didn't like the way they did it. And so I said, okay, it, the, it, the options on the table are you can kind of have fire drill pricing for situations like this because to you, they're utterly predictable. And you could put a, you know, you could charge them essentially overtime, you know, or rush service you know, double rate or some extra upcharge to kind of give them a financial penalty for behaving in this way and um, try to get them to go, you know, to act in a way that would be more beneficial to them and and more a better lifestyle for you. Uh, another thing I suggest, but so there's a nuance there. So um, he was like, well, okay, so then I could just basically say that anything that anything that happens last minute or anything that should have been caught in testing or anything, you know, kind of set these parameters around what a fire drill was and say, <clears throat> uh, if, if you want us to, to show up to put out the fire, it's going to be X. And I was like, well, probably, I, I think what will happen if you do that is that that'll just become the new normal and they will just know that, okay, we have to pay extra uh, for these guys to put out the fire, but okay, we got that approved. If it happens, we've, we've got the autonomy to approve that payment. 
So I was like, if you, if you just want to be to the student, I was like, if you just want to be paid better for putting out the fire, then yes, that's an approach. But if you really do want to incentivize them to stop doing it and to be a little bit more proactive, then don't give them a, a straight price for it. Define what a fire drill is. And then when one comes up, tell them you'll give them a price to deal with it, depending on your circumstances, which means that they'll have to go and get approval. It can't become like a standard operating procedure because every single time there'll have to be this discussion around how much it's going to cost. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit more of a pushback if you don't have a defined price for, you know, overtime or rush service. Uh, and then the last thing was to, um, again, this is, you know, with the, the Hail Mary of trying to have behavior change take place or change the culture is to wait to address the situation uh, to a, a low emotion time. So like when the fire is happening, nobody wants to have a discussion about, see, I told you so, you know, this is, this is what I keep talking about. You guys keep doing this. It's your own fault. Like that's not the time to have the discussion. The time to have the discussion uh, especially if the person who's pulling the fire alarm isn't in a position to do anything about it, e even not just at that moment, but in general. So you say, okay, there might be a time in a, a postmortem or a, uh, a, a biweekly status call or some, something where like everything's kind of calm and reach out to the person who is perhaps farther up the organization that could do something about this and say, Hey, you know, Mr. CFO, did you notice that, you know, this thing happened, this bug went live in production and we had to scramble to fix it, or you guys had to pay us all this extra money to scramble to fix this thing that could have been prevented. Is that, is that bad for you? Like, it seems bad from where we're sitting, but maybe it's not bad for you. But if it is bad for you, would you like to talk about ways to mitigate that in the future to get more proactive in the future and wait to have that kind of a, a culture change conversation, you know, when emotions are not riding high? Um, so, okay. So with all that information, my student was able to go back and say, okay, you know, the thing that we want to do is this sort of, you know, of the range of options, we want to pick this one and, you know, jury's out, we'll see what happens, but they're going to try and go forward with the, um, yes, we will do the, we will keep the client, we will do the fire drills, but we'll price them individually and, and hopefully discourage the behavior in the future. So we'll see what happens. But, uh, that was the jumping off point. That was the email that went out that, um, that Reuven was referring to. So I'm sort of curious, like other people, you know, other folks I'm sure have experience with these sort of chaos clients or fire drill clients and, and how, how have other people dealt with it? If not in one of those ways? Well, I think the, the idea of putting a higher price tag on it is kind of interesting. I might, first of all, think of that as almost like putting a price tag on your misery. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I do think it's important to distinguish, you know, do I want more money or am I looking for a change of my circumstance? Cause in my experience, if you price, um, you know, whether it's hourly or however you do it, flat price, um, for dealing with this sort of thing, what these clients, usually it's, these clients have money to spend typically if they have money to waste. So they almost view it as like kind of a higher level SLA or something. Okay. You know, we'll, we'll pay you more money. And now you really have to respond to this stuff. Um, so I think a lot of what they wind up doing is sort of like almost perversely encouraging it. Oh, okay. Now we're paying for it. So you, yeah, you better get here on Saturday night. There's a funny story about that. I think it's from Malcolm Gladwell about how it might be Seth, uh, Seth Godin about how, um, uh, daycare, a lot of parents were not this particular daycare. A lot of parents were showing up late to pick up their kids, which was a pain for the teacher, the, the, the people that, you know, I guess they're teachers. Right. And so, so they instituted a policy that was, you know, late pickup was $5 for every 15 minutes. And everybody started coming late because they're like, Oh, five bucks, no big deal. You know, it's, <laughs> it's exactly what you said. It was like, now that the social pressure was off, uh, and there was a, a transactional dollar amount on, on, uh, on the, the human interaction of showing up late and having a financial penalty. It was like, oh, now it's okay. Cause I'll just pay my money and it's fine. And if that was cool for the daycare, like, oh, well now we've got all this extra money. Here's a new revenue stream, then great. But like you said, if it's, if, you know, Eric, if, if it's making them miserable, either the, the five bucks was a bad idea or it's too low, maybe it should be a hundred bucks for every 15 minutes. 
you know, so it really hurts. But see, to me, that's not the kind of, that's not the kind of relationship I want to have with clients. I don't want to hit them with a baseball bat every time they need something really bad. It's like the worst time to charge them an arm and a leg because they feel like you have them over a barrel. So it's, that's not my favorite approach personally, but it certainly would work. And if people were looking to, to, to just increase their revenue. So for me, like in terms of how to discourage that, because just where I am in life, I would personally rather discourage the behavior than try to get a little more money. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I found over the course of time when this happens is that I sort of mentally prepare as if I had fired the client, which isn't to say I do or even hint that I'm going to do that. But I start to imagine life without them. And there's a subtle framing that happens in the way that you deal with them at that point. Like once you kind of make that flip, you start to make contingency plans of maybe lining up other clients. And I have found that there's just this kind of subtle shift in the way you deal with them where you're more inclined to say, you know, I just don't do that or, you know, I'm not available or what have you because you're not as worried about the consequences to the relationship. So for me, that's a good first step to try to steer things maybe towards where you'd rather be. Yeah, that's great. I love that because it'll come out in small, subtle ways in your language, how quickly you take to, uh, how long you take to uh, respond, how you respond. Yeah, that's really good. I, yeah, I mean, I, Go ahead. Sorry, go go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I often will try to push back uh, in ways that make it uh, explicit to the client that they are changing priorities and ask them to kind of very explicitly say that, yes, this other thing, this new thing is a priority over the old thing that they had told me that they wanted to have done this week and make it very clear that, okay, so the you know, when this new thing takes over as the top priority, that means the other thing that you said that you want to done this week is not going to get done this week. And I need you to be okay with that. And you need to understand that. And that then if it happens again next week, the thing's not getting done next week. Uh, and that sometimes helps. It doesn't help with all clients and it, you know, the situation, of course, like if it's the type of a fire that, oh God, production's down and we need to fix it. You know, of course, most clients are going to say, no, that's the the top priority. But other other clients are, you know, very easily distracted by, oh, this this one prospect that we really want to land said we need this one new feature before they'll sign up. And in, in order to do that, we're going to put off the work that we know 80 percent of our client of our customers could use, you know, uh, and they'll do kind of weird things with that. And sometimes just making the the change in priorities and the resulting impact to the schedule more apparent to them uh, will kind of cause them to reconsider. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing. Like when you have a client call you up and say, Oh my God, we have this emergency. Sometimes emergencies do happen and sometimes they need to be taken care of right away. But a lot of times, I mean, these cast clients are those where it's not really an emergency, where it's just sort of their whim, where like, what, what, what is the phrase? Like, just because it's it, like, it's urgent, it doesn't mean it's immediate, something along those lines, basically. They have it. It's um, in my experience, they're focused on things that are urgent to them, but not important. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's, that's, that's the, the phrase. And basically, I mean, part of our job is to calm them down. And to say, okay, I understand, like, yeah, you know, I understand what your feelings are. I understand that you feel it to be important, but um, let let's talk about sort of what's really involved here. And if they call you up, and I've definitely had clients, you know, call me up at all sorts of crazy hours, saying, oh, this is you know super important, and you've got to deal with it right away, and it's an emergency, and it's not. Yeah, I would definitely reevaluate the, um, <laughs> you know, dealing with a client mm-hmm. in this way. And I definitely don't feel comfortable if someone's called me up in the evening and said, I've got a real emergency to start negotiating with them over price, right? And mm-hmm. say, well, I'll deal with it. But cause then that just looks like, I don't know, meanness, extortion, <laughs> something <laughs> along those lines. And, and, and then what if it really is an emergency? What you really want to be in the position of saying, like, you can trust me and you can trust me to, to charge you more when you really are, are like uh, in a hole. Um, so I, I'm not comfortable with that, but asking, you know, if someone says, Look, uh, I know we're already asking you to do X and Y and Z. We need to do these, you know, A, B, and C also, and we've got a real deadline. Then asking them for extra, you know, because it's, they're not going to prioritize. That seems to me to be reasonable. Yeah, I think that that's an important distinction because I, I think going in, I was kind of assuming 
um, that the chaos was self-inflicted. So there's a big difference <laughs> between self-inflicted, misprioritized chaos and legitimate emergencies. If I'm dealing with a client that has a legitimate emergency, then absolutely I want to help and I'm not going to do any kind of ex extortionist pricing whatsoever or really even hold it against them. Uh, it's when it's self-inflicted, when they're shifting their priorities on a whim or in some way not you know, taking care of their business and trying to externalize those problems. Yeah, this is uh, this is for clients who chronically do this, who where it's just normal course of business, where it, it just they're just not thinking ahead. It's utterly predictable to you what is going to happen. You can see exactly what they are not doing. You know, you're not flossing your teeth. Therefore, you're going to get cavities. So start flossing your teeth and don't come crying to me when you have cavities. You know, like I'm talking about the, the email and the situation that the student was dealing with. It was chronic. They've been working together for a year and every two weeks there's a fire drill and it was utterly predictable. So I totally agree. You don't want to uh, sort of be profiteering on a genuine, you know, whatever U.S. East one goes down, you know, like what, I mean, not, <laughs> what are you going to do there anyway, but it's not their fault, you know? So, and after something like that, you can, after a situation like that, where it was out of out of their control or not something that anybody could have predicted reasonably, you could say, you know, have a kind of a postmortem where you say, well, do you get, you know, there are ways that we could prevent the damage if something like that happened in the future. We could have a conversation about that if you want. I think it's a low likelihood, but it could happen. If we want to talk about that, we can talk about that. That's a very different thing than someone who's just running around with their pants down all the time and complaining when they trip. It's like, well, pull up your pants. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, one, one thing I want to loop back to uh, about, about the idea of, of reworking priorities, which I like. So somebody comes to you and says, you know, sales manager comes running in or somebody comes running in and they say, oh, this is urgent thing. It's urgent to them. Perhaps not important to the business, but it's urgent to them. And you say, okay, we can do that, but it's going to push these other things back. I'm totally fine with that. I've done that in many occasions, but only when I'm dealing with the person, like the, the, the main buyer, because what can happen is the, if you have like a sales manager run in and say, Hey, this is urgent, or you've got a customer service person who's like everybody, everybody's, everybody's freaking out. All the users are freaking out because of thing. And, uh, and that person is not really um, not qualified is the wrong word, but that person is not in a position of authority to decide what an emergency is, but you kind of inherit their, uh, their, their emotions, you know, you, you're sympathizing with them and you mm -hmm. say, okay, I'll jump in, I'll, I'll swoop in and do this, but it's going to push the project back. And they're like, okay, okay, great. And then later the person who's actually in charge of the project is going to be like, wait a second, why are we off schedule? You know, so you, you just want to make sure you're talking to the right person someone who's in a position to decide what the actual priorities are. Make sure you're going to, you know, if, if customer service person is flipping out, be like, all right, well call Susan and have her let me know if she wants this to take the place of what we were supposed to do this sprint. Cause you know, this will probably take, this will probably take a week and that's going to push something else back. So filter it through, make sure that that person, if they are lower down in the organization, filters it up their side and it comes to you from the horse's mouth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so another um, technique that I have personally for discouraging the kind of behavior um, is one that it it's hard for the client to resent too much, even though you're refusing, which is in essence, um, if they come to you with a one-off request, some kind of fire drill that's not part of what you agreed to, but it's strongly implied that you know you would be the one to do it or what have you, you can respond and say, in essence, no, I don't do that. But here, you know, is a list of a few people or here's a plan of attack for you to get that service delivered. Um, one that I'll often kind of use to put p things into perspective for people is, you know, that's not something I do. But maybe if you go to Upwork and you put something out there with these parameters, you can find someone to do that for you per hour. It sort of positions the request subtly as maybe not the greatest of ideas, but you're also being helpful while refusing to do it. Um, it's kind of hard for them to overtly get upset with you because you're still trying to help solve their problem. Yeah. And, and you're creating some friction, which will reveal how important it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of 
put this in a slightly different direction, also in terms of just the, the pain pricing. Pricing can be used. And I think in some cases should be used to um, discourage clients from doing things. So I'm not trying to say at all, oh, like, ne- you know, never do that. Um, and I do that all the time with my courses. I say I have a maximum of 16 people per class. And clients always say to me, yeah, but what if we want more? And I say, okay, you can have more. And it costs, I mean, it's not enough to make a huge dent in their salary, you know, in, in their budget, but enough that they'll rethink it and they probably don't want it. And I've had clients say to me, but why? Like, we just want to add a few more people. And I say, no, I, I don't think it's as good. I don't think it's as effective. I don't want to do it. Um, and they respond to that. They definitely respond to that. Or the clients that say, we don't care. We're willing to, we're willing to pay. Um, so you can definitely try to discourage them from doing things. And whether that means the timing of when they give you the requests or how the request should be fulfilled or, you know, what the, the threshold is for considering it done or not, you, you should not be embarrassed at all to, you know, deal with that. Um, but just as we saying before, don't, don't hold them over a barrel, uh, um, at the last moment as a result. Yeah. It, they're just not, it, it's the timing is, is wrong to do it like that. It has to be something that's, that's an ongoing behavior like that is just baked into the organization before I would start to take, uh, take any of these steps really. Cause you know, some emergency happens. Okay. Fine. The first time, maybe the second time. Okay. Then once it becomes predictable, that's when you, you, after the postmortem on the most recent one, that's when you can have a conversation, which, you know, again, could be, you guys need to do something about this, or we're not going to be able to continue to work together because I don't work like this. Uh, I helped you out on these two occasions because it seemed like out of your control, but I'm starting to see a pattern here. Is that something you want to work on? Or you can go to the pain pricing, or you can just create general friction uh, so that it's, so that it's difficult. So it, it, they have to take some actions on their part. They can't just lob the ball into your court and be like, deal with this mess. You can just bounce it back and say, well, here are some ways that you can deal with the mess. Why don't you consider those first? Right, right, absolutely. The um, Something you touched on there, Ruben, that makes me think of another subtle consideration um, is, so if, if you're going to set the maximum um for a course at 16. And then beyond that, maybe you're saying this affects the quality of the service delivery. I think an important thing that people might overlook, especially if they're new to, um, you know, the independent consulting or freelancing world is the degree to which, um, dealing with fire drills affects not only the quality of your service delivery, but also your business. Uh, maybe the easiest example is if you're spending all weekend dealing with some, uh, clients problems, what you're probably not doing is working on your business. So, there's kind of the internal evaluation of like, um, for instance, with the uh, content agency that we run, if clients create a lot of churn as we're planning things out for our authors, uh, that winds up reverberating throughout um, messing with our content schedule, potentially for other clients. Um, So that's a very uh, overt example, but there might be more subtle ones uh, where dealing with this isn't just miserable, but it's actually bad for your business. Um, and, And that's an important thing to bear in mind. Absolutely. Yeah, there's an element of Stockholm syndrome at play here, I think, sometimes too, where I, I can think of, I had one particular customer who I referred to as he who shall not be named because every time I mentioned his name for years, <laughs> for years after we worked together, it was the weirdest thing. Like the name would come up in conversation and sure enough, an email would show up in my inbox. <laughs> and it was like, it was the weirdest thing. So my wife started calling him he who shall not be named. And there's this, there's this weird kind of bonding that can happen when you go through an emergency with someone and it can be a little bit addictive. So people who especially love to put on the superhero cape and jump into the fire and save the day can get addicted to this kind of, this kind of, uh, relationship, you know, where the, this, this client this chaos client is creating situations for you to play the hero not on purpose but they're you're just sort of in this symbiotic relationship where they create emergencies and you can be a hero and that's fun yeah it is addictive it's fun until it's not right like i mean but for certainly for someone who enjoys like we enjoy helping our clients that's sort of why we're in the service industry and and we get a kick out of it. it's like wow i was able to use my technical knowledge to help these people out and improve their business and all that's great mm-hmm. and right I, I agree with you that it's great until it's not that at a certain point it becomes old and annoying and so forth but there's definitely a sense of wow like 
I mean, I got a call once, I probably told this story on the podcast before, I got this call once from these people saying, oh, we have such a terrible emergency and we need help and uh, we can't wait. And I literally pulled an all-nighter at their office fixing up their servers. And I felt great about myself until it turns out that they were scammers and didn't pay me. But aside from that, um, <laughs> it was really great. And, and I felt terrific about it that I'd really like saved this business from utter destruction. When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks, and VPNs. Plus, they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like backups, node balancer, and Longview to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code FREELANCERSHOW2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is FREELANCERSHOW2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com slash careers to see their available positions. So, yeah, I mean, so that raises the specter of like, how do you get paid and when do you get paid for emergencies? which is probably a little bit off topic and it, it's really broad too, because it depends on what kind of business you have. So if, you know, if one of my retainer clients is repeatedly having these like emergencies where I need to fly to Croatia because some project is off the rails, <laughs> that's, that's one thing, but, or, or, you know, compared to the description you just gave, which is another one where like, okay, you know, spend an all nighter at somebody's office. That's a, that's another kind. They're all, you know, or another one is, uh, oh, we forgot to tell you that we need to demo the software at this trade show uh, and it's Saturday. You're like, okay, <laughs> um, it's not really ready for, you know, it's, it, it's not ready. You know what I mean? It, well, we've got a, you know, we spent $150,000 for a booth and a bunch of salespeople and we're all flying there and it needs to be ready. I mean, that is just dumb. You know, so it, there, anyway, there, there's a whole bunch of different situations. Here's another one. Somebody one time uh, called me and said, we have been trying to get this thing ready for a demo for a round. We're trying to get a, a, a second funding round for the software. And we gave it to some developer who basically lied to us, did a terrible job. We need, we need it basically to be fixed. All of this huge list of bugs needs to be fixed. This is a Friday afternoon. This all needs to be fixed by Monday because we're we're going to be meeting with venture capitalists on Monday and it needs to work. And <laughs> I wasn't even their client; like they weren't even a client of mine. It was just someone I knew. And so all of these, all of those scenarios, I would map out a different kind of a different. You know, you could see certain kinds of pricing slash billing making more sense in one or the other. So like for this particular venture funding thing, I was like, it'd be twenty thousand dollars for the weekend. I didn't even look at the code; nothing. I was like, if you pay me, if you get me $20,000 by eight o'clock tonight, I will do it. I'll burn my entire weekend. I've got plans this weekend. I'm positive I can do it. If I can't do it by Monday, I'll give you your money back. <laughs> and she was like, eh. she was like, you are such a, she used a word that means prostitute. And I, was like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, whatever. I'm sitting here having beers and you come to me with this emergency that's not mine. And what are the odds that I'm even going to get paid? What if you guys don't get funded? There's no way. If you get me $20,000, she's like, all right, I'll call you back. I might be a prostitute, but that makes only one of us in this conversation a professional here. <laughs> Good one. So, yeah. So, you know, there was no way I was getting paid for that after the fact. No chance. I could have done it. There's no possible way I would have gotten paid after that. Maybe maybe six months down the road, they'd start. Oh well, how about equity? You know, we got funded. Can we give you <laughs> no? And the, the situation that Reuven described. Here's the one. Here's the one. Especially not even an all nighter, but if you go in and it's one of those situations where they're like they're in a massive jam, and maybe you worked on the project six years ago. Their developer flaked. Production is down. They send a hail mary email, and you swoop in there, and and in fifteen minutes you get yourself back contextualize like oh yeah how did i used to work on that? oh yeah right right right. Uh, okay here's the problem right here click done 
And you don't want to charge by the hour for that. <laughs> That's like, it'll take you 30 minutes uh, and, and save the day. Like I would either charge nothing for that or at least four figures, like a significant so amount I, of money. I, now, now you're reminding me, I did exactly that. So I was teaching one day somewhere and I still had at that point some consulting clients, like development clients at a company where they dealt with like, they did it with clean rooms mm. in chip manufacturing companies and they had like a box that sat inside there that happened to run PostgreSQL and I'd done like some of their Postgres development for them. So I get a call in the middle of the day while I'm teaching, help, 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 something's not working, we need to get out a new version. I'm like, oh, I'm teaching. They said, okay, when you're done, please come here. And so I get to their offices and it's, I don't know, 6.37 at night and this, it's not the senior management of the whole company, but there were good four or five people, like the developer I worked with on up, waiting in this room for me I walk in, I look at the error message, I say, oh, the error message says you need to do X, Y, and Z. If I was there for 10 minutes beyond the hellos, I'd be surprised. <laughs> and of course, yes, I charged by the hour for that. And in retrospect, that was so ridiculously foolish because just the salaries of the people waiting around there, not to mention the importance of the job, justified me saying to them, okay, I'm willing to do this and like not seeing my family for, for a few more hours and so forth and who knows how long it'll take. Um, but once it was done, once I'd arrived there, then and, and once I sort of implicitly agreed to our regular billing, then there was no going back. I couldn't mm -hmm. show up and say, oh, by the way, now that I'm here. Um, so you do need to make these things clear in advance. Yeah, uh, it'll be five thousand dollars. If I can't fix it, I'll give you the money back. I do think for myself that I'd have a pretty dis pretty different disposition towards a chaos client with whom I was regularly engaged versus one calling me up every now and then out of the blue for a Hail Mary, yeah. I'd probably be more inclined to deal with the latter. It's a good pricing structure. They understand the value of it, presumably. Um, it's a lot harder when it's uh, somebody with whom you have like a large relationship surface area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Where yeah, It's a slightly different situation that, that we're talking about now. And I think for those situations where you do have you know, kind of a big client that is a chaos client and you do want to maintain a relationship with them, uh, one of the things that I found helpful is just kind of consciously maintaining a little bit of professional uh, emotional detachment from the situation and don't internalize their sense of urgency and emergency every time that you sense it coming at you. Mm. Uh, like I try to, you know, evaluate is, you know, actually how urgent and how much of emergency is this thing? And some people just love drama. And if there's not something that is currently a source of drama, they're going to invent something to be the drama. <laughs> and yes, in those situations, you know, we no, that's, that's not really all that important. That's not an emergency. And maybe, you know, some, some people you can't really tell them that, or they're going to get angry and emotional at you. Uh, but if you have your own internal sense of detachment and can realize that, oh, okay, that's, that's Fred being crazy again. Uh, you know, we're, <laughs> we're, we'll, we'll pacify him, but it, this isn't a drop everything. The world's on fire kind of an emergency. Um, you know, it can help, I think. Um, yeah, what would a doctor do? I, I, I find myself asking that question with a fair degree of regularity. What would a doctor do in this situation? Doctor <laughs> can't deliver miracles. They, all, the best they can really do is try to diagnose the situation, give some sort of prescription, but it, with, with, I mean, I mean, think to all the, all the doctor situations you've been in. They, they never they're great at not overpromising, So <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, well, yeah. like you try to get a straight answer out of a doctor. It's not easy. They're yeah. like, well, it right. seems like this. It's probably this. I don't think you need to worry about it. Or I think you need to go see a specialist or whatever. Try to be like a doctor because they've, you know, they see actual scary stuff constantly, like real, real emergencies, real ones. Not yeah. like your web servers down. It's like your legs <laughs> off. That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so if they can maintain this is, this is jeremy's point is great it's like if you can if you can if they can maintain they, they have to maintain a certain level of of disconnection from like they can't have sympathy they might have empathy but they can't have sympathy they they have to be like okay well 
the professional detachment, if it's not there, they can't do their job. They would just fall apart. So yeah, that's a great point. I usually think of it more in terms of like, um, around deadlines and things like that. Like I can't promise we're going to hit this deadline. I'm not in control of it. You know, it's like, I can't, you know, you just can't. Yep. So yep. yeah, I love that point. Can you maybe, I mean, when you're first speaking with clients, um, and I know some of you vet them more than others. I really don't necessarily vet clients, especially now that I'm doing mostly training, but what are the telltale signs or what sort of things can you ask to avoid even starting up with such a person? I mean, some of them are very obvious about it, but what can you ask them to, to sort of say, you know, I don't think we're going to be a good fit for, for your style of work or for my style of work. That's a great question. So for me, um, <clears throat> if I think of, I have a few different kind of freelance consulting business interests over the years with, um, Clients of the consulting, the IT management and strategy consulting that I did, uh, it sounds almost trite, but one of the easiest ways to get a feel for that up front for me was to see how much rescheduling of initial, you know, perspective or discovery calls happened. Usually if they're doing a lot of rescheduling, there's um, these messages that come along with it that, you know, are the sort of hearty har, my hair's on fire, you know how it is, wall-to-wall meetings. That's usually not a great sign. Um with um so the writing agency or the content agency uh we kind of set up some things there um like one of the things we'll talk about is <clears throat> that we're going to plan out the content well in advance or that we typically unless it's priced higher don't do multiple rounds of feedback um iteration on the post usually that really gives kind of hard pause to the sorts of clients that would want to be chaos clients yeah i'm thinking back and and the commonality is this sort of like eric said the hardy har kind of cynicism or or um victim kind of stance we're like you know you know how it is oh crazy you know traffic can you believe it yeah i can believe it it's traffic it's there every day you know so that's sort of like uh it's kind of like a cynicism and a kind of a victim mentality that can that can seep up like I'm not in control of my life kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, the one I hear a lot in the enterprise context is, you know how it goes. Every meeting starts 10 minutes late. Yeah. I know how that goes for some clients. Yeah, I do know how that goes. It turns into a bad business. It's a bad business culture. <laughs> it's called toxic. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yep, yep. yeah. so you can pretty much, I love the rescheduling one's great because I, I'm trying to think like, yeah, yeah, that's a bad sign. Uh, I've asked before about what are your like, what's your project management process and tools like? Uh, it doesn't always give you all the information that you want, and sometimes it's really more of a filter for uh, this is my first rodeo than telling you much about uh, what they're real management style is, but you can kind of pick by, you know, being able to see if they actually have a reasonably organized, you know, list of objectives and priorities and that kind of stuff. Or if they're just like, Oh, we didn't know. We'll, we'll just email you when something comes up. Uh, you know, <laughs> those are ones that I tend to stay away from. Oh, that's that, that makes me think to, the way I handle sales conversations where it's like one of the things I, I ask is, well, what will it, what, if this project is a success, if it's a home run, what does that look like? And if they, and, and when they describe that, it'll be something that's, that's easily measurable. And if they can't come up with anything that would be measurable, it tells me that's still a little bit different, but it's related where they don't have a grip on what their goals are. And, and they're just in reactive mode. So like they're not, they're not driving the bus. They're strapped to the front of it. They're like, ah, or, you know, <laughs> or getting dragged behind it. It's like, you know, it's like drive the bus. So if they, at least, at least if they know where the steering wheel is and what's on the dashboard, then that makes me a little bit, you know, then they can answer that question. They'd be like, well, home run, Pff, that'd be great. It would look like this. We'd have the revenue would be here. Or we'd be leaving at five o'clock every night or employee morale would go up. 
it would be great. My life would be a dream. I'm like, all right, I can measure all those things. We can come up with ways to measure those, not precisely to the unit, but we can tell if they got better or worse. So, mm-hmm. you know, that if they can't answer any questions like that, then it's, um, that's a red flag to me. Usually I attribute it to just the immaturity of the business. Like it's a brand new startup and they're like, I don't know. We're just trying, this is like a moonshot. And yeah, so it's, it's not necessarily a culture thing. It's just more like, does this business have any sense of organization or goals or direction? So that's a, I think a great point and a great thing to look for. And it reminds me of a very closely related issue too, where if you're dealing with a theoretical buyer, um, that doesn't really understand the goals or how to quantify them. A lot of times in my experience, um, across the different lines of business I've had, what you're actually dealing with is sort of, um, the term that comes to mind is a lackey. I hate to, (laughs) I hate to use it, but you're like one step too low in the corporate pyramid. And the person that's really making the decisions is your buyer's boss. And that is a good recipe for chaos clients because you're dealing with somebody that doesn't really have the big picture. So you work with that person. They understand you're going Mm -hmm. back and forth. Then they present it to their boss and their boss takes a red pen to it and says, this is all wrong. Now this person is panicked and they're coming (laughs) at you, you know, so if, if they can't quantify stuff like that, that might be a sign that you're not actually dealing with the decision maker. So you've got this person in the middle that's just kind of trapped. Totally. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, those are terrible situations. Uh-huh. And it's even worse when your contact is taking stuff back to a committee and then the <laughs> committee comes back with competing and contradictory asks uh, for what they want. Uh, we want yeah. three perpendicular lines drawn with a green <laughs> pen, but we want them to be red. Uh, I love oh, that's that a great video. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And sadly, too true. Um, but luckily, that one's usually pretty easy to uncover if you're stumbling into that because you ask some questions about who's going to make the decision. What does the sign off process on this thing look like for you guys to consider it done? Um, and usually pretty, you know, I don't think I've ever had a client try to be dishonest with me on that question. Um yeah, they usually. Yeah, claim. that is easy to detect. Yeah, yeah. I had a client who was very honest with me about it a few years ago. I guess it was like four or five years ago already. Um, they were very honest about the fact that there were four different people who had competing visions for things, and uh, they they each one sort of thought that they should be in charge. Um, and I thought, well, that's probably okay. Like, I I think it'll work <laughs> out right. Um, and uh, <laughs> I remember very clearly being on vacation with my family in Berlin, spending you know afternoons and evenings in an internet cafe because uh, we didn't really have internet access in our apartment that was worth anything talking to these people going through the list of things that well joe thought it was great but john thought it was terrible so we got to put it back on the list i'm like oh my god this is like never <laughs> gonna end and even even when it came to paying me right so one person said yes you should be paid and the finance people said oh no you shouldn't be yet that was that was fun <laughs> and exciting in a way that i repeat <laughs> Good framing. Yeah, homie, don't play that. Yeah. Oh, wow, this is good stuff. So so we've got, we've, we've listed a couple of things you could do directly. You know, the range of options that you could do to, to sort of thwart the behavior or at least monetize the behavior in a an ongoing client relationship. We've talked about sort of Hail Mary stuff, like not ongoing relationships, but somebody has an emergency, what to do there. And a little bit about red flags on how to detect whether or not you've got a chaos client coming down the pike. So that seems, that seems, what else, is there anything else we could talk about there? What else could possibly go wrong with a client? Yeah, what could possibly um, go wrong? Look, I mean, I, 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 we sort of touched on this, but it, I mean, with this, with this client that I just mentioned now, the one I was dealing with, with Berlin also, um, it wasn't so much a, like a constant, I mean, we had constant issues, but like it wasn't constant. Oh, and you also have to do this and this and this. It sort of, 
<laughs> they they then did one of you mentioned uh, earlier. Oh yes, and we have I think it was you, Jonathan. Like oh, we have this trade show on Monday, and a lot of things you know need need to be done. So they actually did say, well, before we can call the project signed off, and by the way, we do need to present it to all of our clients in another two weeks. We have the following seventy very small things to deal with, and the tip off there is very small, right? The moment the client starts telling you, oh, you shouldn't really worry your pretty head about this, right? Like this is so easy for you. Um, you could just get it done so fast. Um, not so much, right? Like they, you can decide whether things are big or small and you can decide whether it's in the scope or whether it's covered by what you originally talked about. Um, but yeah, that, that can be, that can be a problem. If they keep doing that, I would definitely see that as a warning sign also. Yeah, that's a sign that they don't value your, your expertise too. Like, like we, we yeah. used to get, like when I wor- worked at a firm still, it was not uncommon for somebody to be like, how hard could it be? You know, just like completely, like this should be easy for someone like you. It's like, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but that's not the point. <laughs> so that, yeah, that's a separate, that's a related little bit, maybe a little bit separate, but yeah, definitely that's a sign of a, a, a bad client. Yeah. All right. Any, any last uh, comments about this? I think we've uh, we've covered it pretty reasonably. Before we move on to picks, I'm good. All right. Uh, Jonathan, why you why don't you start off us with start us off with picks then? For sure. I got three. I think that are you know first the expert video, which is absolutely great. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I didn't even know you guys were all going to get that reference. But I was just <laughs> that's hilarious. So sad. Sadly, we all did. Yeah, so it's a yeah. hilarious video, and uh, it's it's not just funny. I think it's actually useful for people who do this kind of work to be like, you know, to just call BS when BS is being shoveled on you. So fabulous video. We'll link to it in the show notes, obviously. Uh, another one that keeps on popping into my mind is a book called Flawless Consulting by I think it's Peter Block. And this is a a book, if you're doing straight up consulting, like you're actually doing advisory work with clients on projects, not, not just coding, you know, not just implementation work, but true consulting this, I wish I had read this book 20 years ago and I, I only recently found it, you know, maybe six months ago. It's a really, really good book for anybody who is looking to move, um, in that direction or to improve their skills with advisory work, uh, client advisory work. And then last, I'll do a self-promotional one. I, I don't think I mentioned it yet, but a couple of weeks ago, maybe earlier last month, I released a, a book for freelancers called The Freelancer's Roadmap. And it's um, I, it's been out for a little while, so I've gotten feedback on it. I've got a, a version two. I wouldn't call it a second edition, but a version two has come out already. So all the typos and ebook bugs have been corrected and I've been <laughs> getting good feedback on it, which is super uh, gratifying. So if folks are interested in that, they can go to thefreelancersroadmap.com. And that's it for me. Excellent. Uh, Jeremy, what you got for us? Uh, I've got a couple of promotional ones uh, related to Jonathan's last pick, his book. Uh, he produced that with Remark, uh, which is remark.io. Yes. Uh, it helps consultants, freelancers produce documents and ebooks uh, for PDF, EPUB, and Mobi. Uh, and then have a short email course called Increase Your Consulting Fees uh, that you can find at increaseyourconsultingfees.com. Uh, some tips for how to make it more apparent to your clients the value that you're delivering. Big plus one for Remark. I love it. I've made two books with it. <laughs> uh, Eric, what you got? Um, sure, I've got a couple uh, myself. Um, the first one is for a site that um, was referred to me called HorkyHandbook.com. Um, basically, for my content agency, hit subscribe. We uh, were looking for a virtual assistant, um, you know, to give us a fair chunk of time. This is a pretty simple site. You go, you fill out a form, and after I filled out this form, I had I don't know twenty or twenty-five people interested in helping us as a VA. Um, so that was pretty handy with a relatively minimal amount of work up front on my end. <clears throat> and then the second one is sort of self-promotional and maybe a little bit audience promotional. Um, speaking of the content marketing agency hit subscribe, um, what we do is we um, produce content, blog posts, uh, ebooks, white papers, et cetera, for 
companies that market to software developers, and we do that by having software developers write the content. So anybody out there listening that's interested in writing about software engineering or DevOps topics, um, we can put a link in the show notes to where you can uh, contact us about being an author. It's a great way to establish some authority and um, to establish some relationships with our clients who are often dev tools companies and such. Excellent. So I've also got a few picks this week. First of all, uh, I just read a great book called Everybody Lies, Big Data, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Really Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Um, it's by Seth Stevens Davidowitz, and uh, he's a you know, data scientist and the Harvard and Google and all those places. And he uh, gives really, really fantastic, first of all, stories and vignettes. Um, he does a lot of, uh, but also explanations for um, sort of a lot of uh, how how data science can analyze things, what it can and cannot do, and what we need to worry about. And uh, he uses a lot of Google search data. So, you know, when you enter something into Google, um, if you enter one or two words, it will try to complete those. So he uses the Google data based on that to figure out all sorts of stuff and predict all sorts of things. And fascinating, fun book. And he calls uh, Google and the Internet digital truth serum that in the privacy of your home or office or wherever or your phone, you're going to make searches that um, reflect what you really think and not what you're going to tell your friends, family and so forth. So that's pick number one. Um, pick number two is I just discovered a show that might even be renewed, but I saw I was watching on Netflix called Timeless, which if you're into science fiction shows, it's actually great fun. Um, almost done binge watching it uh, in between doing other things, but definitely recommend it. Um, and the third thing is in the self-promotion department. Um, so I just earlier today, as of recording this in early June, finished writing and sending out the final exercise of the first group of weekly Python exercise. Um, and I've got a second group going now, but a third group will be starting in September. If you're interested in joining it, go to weeklypythonexercise.com and you can sign up and I'll send you more information when it comes out. Uh, probably next month or so, I'll be sending out sales information about it. And it's now ready, and this is this is a brand new announcement, it is now ready for packaging and use by companies. So if it's the sort of thing that you think your company would like to do and not mingle with the riffraff on the internet, but just have it <laughs> in a private forum where you can just talk amongst yourselves and discuss Python uh, with other people in your company, contact me and I can set that up. And I've already started, I'm already talking to a few companies about doing that, sort of a white label private version of weekly Python exercise. And I guess that is it for this week. So Eric, Jonathan, and Jeremy, thanks as always. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening out there. And we will be back next week on The Freelancer Show. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.